friends. How's it going? Zig coming in at the top of the interview. Today on the show, we have Adele Berté. Adele has an immense and complicated music and art career. She recently has written the book called Peter and the Wolves, and it's a memoir about Peter Lofner, a Cleveland musician who um, helped form Perubu um, and was a complicated character. And there's all these rumors about this loose cannon rock and roll figure and um in her book she does a really amazing job of describing who Peter was from her first hand experience. Now I picked up this book studying for the Dave Thomas interview, which you've heard either prior to this or post this, and um got carried away with Peter's story and found that very intriguing and then found those recordings to be really inspiring. So I reached out to Adele. She is coming out with a new book um, which I think is available for pre-order now, called Why Bell Matters. And she's doing this amazing, badass job of taking all these these figures of rock and punk and, and no wave and telling their stories. Her music career is immense and has so many twists and turns and different projects. It's really, really cool, and I'm excited to share this interview with you guys. But before we get into that, I'm going to share with you an excerpt of her reading the First passage from her book, Peter and the Wolves. Smogvale Books presents Peter and the Wolves by Adele Berté. Chapter 1, Terminal City. I met him in Cleveland, city of bridges and burning river beneath. The main avenue bridge has been painted a fresh cornflower blue, a striking contrast to the red brick swath of emptiness that is Irish town bend in the flats of Cleveland. On the corner of Elm and Main Avenue, I look up at the anchor sign outside the Harbor Inn, an old sailor bar still standing from the 1890s. Peter and I once stumble-strutted from bar stool to stage here in the flats at Sailor and Biker Bars. Eagle Street Saloon and Pirate's Cove, armed with guitars, pistols, and outlaw attitudes of cool. Home of the Cuyahoga River, immortalized in Randy Newman's song, Burn On, Cleveland presents as the cradle of rock and roll civilization. The Boswell sisters recorded a song called Rock and Roll. Rock and roll, yeah! And 20 years later, radio DJ Alan Moondog Freed appropriated the song title Christening America's New Rebel Music right here on radio station WJW. Cleveland's musical heritage wrestles for mastery with the broken spirit of the Industrial Revolution haunting the banks of the Cuyahoga. The flat spreads out beneath a web of bridges, jackknife bascule, Roman arch, Beam buttress and cantilever, the lexicon of the bridge has its own percussive poetry, and Cleveland is a city of bridges, more than 330 connecting the past to life goes on. I drive along the Detroit Superior Bridge. The flickering light through the beams above becomes kinetoscope, tires on steel striking a steady heartbeat of dreams past. The shutter rotates, the beat pulls me back. A thought occurred to me when I went on the trail of the why of him. Reading the lyrics to his song, Cinderella Backstreet, I realized Peter was Cinderella, singing about himself. He had secrets. We all do. And he knew well the role envy can play in extinguishing the light of one shining too brightly. Envious stepsisters appear in all genders and guises. Envy, the sixth deadly sin and the most insidious. It guided his hand as he erased his own life. Oh, I am a backstreet boy And anyone will tell you so I on the moon, the 
here for the one or two of the kids with no place to go. Now but me and Scotty were talking. nervous way that we always did It was then I realized I had something there to show him But that I would have to keep it in So I said I'm gonna walk on down in the alley Down where the light shines so very dimly All right, and that is the first excerpt of Peter and the Wolves. Um, before we get any further, oh, and Peter Lofner on um, Cinderella Backstreet taking it out there. Before we get further into this podcast, this podcast is mixed by Studio 44, Studio 44 CLE. For any audio streamed or video needs, make sure you go to Studio 44 CLE. You can reach Jay at Studio 44 via Facebook or Studio 44 um, CLE at gmail.com. Also, if you can like, rate, subscribe, review the podcast and all the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to all these super cool, inspirational people and sharing that inspiration with you guys. So if you can do that. Also, we're on the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, um, the YouTubes, etc. You can follow us on that. It helps me reach more people and share those insights with you. Without further ado, here we go, Adele. It's kind of branched out from there. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, year and a half, huh? To say the or least. Year. To say the least. Still <laughs> still seems to keep yeah. <laughs> getting interested. Um, now I you're... know. It's... Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> you're in L.A., right? <laughs> yes, okay. I'm in L.A. I've been here since 93, and um, I, I, I think I might be going back to the East Coast at some point in the next year or two for sure. Yeah, just because of how uh, everything's been? Well, L.A. has really changed a lot in the last uh, probably four years. It's it's like there's so many homeless people, and there's just no housing for people, and the prices keep going up, but, of course, the wages don't. So um, we're kind of overrun with homeless now, and it's really sad, and it's getting more and more dangerous, so... Um, and, and honestly, I prefer, you know, the East coast. I miss the seasons. I grew up in Cleveland, right. you know, <laughs> when, when so you... I, I, I'm one of those rare people who misses <laughs> like big snowstorms and thunderstorms, you know, I, I feel it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of a, I'm a tomorrow. I won't feel it as much cause we're supposed to get a bunch of snow and I'm not looking forward to cleaning that off the car, but to be locked uh-huh. in, it's kind of, it's kind of. <laughs> I don't know, it gives you a sense of calm. Like, yeah, you, you don't have to go out somewhere. You can't. So it's it's all right. Right. And uh, yeah, L.A. and New York move so fast. And uh, was it at least yeah. especially New York? You've, you've kind of bounced everywhere, though. So where in Cleveland yeah. did you grow up? Well, I kind of grew up all over the place, honestly. I mean, my, my when I lived with my family, I lived with my, my mother and my father till I was about 11 and that was in Maple Heights. Okay. And, and then I ended up in foster homes in, um, uh, Parma and Parma Heights. Okay. Um, and then went to a place called Mary Crest, which was a convent school for girls in, um, for independence. And then I was in another place, uh, uh, a school called Blossom Hill, which was a reformatory. That was in, where was that? Brexville, Brexville. But then, yeah, but then when I was old enough to get my own place, I lived um, uh, in Ohio City for a minute. Okay. And, uh, and then mostly in Coventry, you know, the Coventry area. Right. Right. That's, it's funny. Uh, um, you, you mentioned in, the, in Peter and the Wolf's, 
you mentioned um, the bookstore in Coventry, and that's where I got the book. And I was kind of like, whoa, uh, uh. <laughs> that's, a, yeah. that's a trip. Um, so yeah. you worked as an assistant at a, a vet, an OT assistant at a veteran hospital? I did, the, the one in Brexville, yeah. Okay, okay. And then, so I imagine this is the time you're living on your own when you're working there? Um, actually, what happened was uh, there were several girls in Blossom Hill who were of age getting ready to be emancipated. And the ones that didn't have families to go back to, they, they got about six of us jobs at the Veterans Hospital down the road. It was very close to the, to the, to the uh, school. And so we worked there for a few months before and saved enough money so that when we were emancipated, we could continue working there, but get our own apartments. Gotcha. So that's kind of how that went. Yeah. That That's a, that's a yeah. tough, like uh, OT assistant. So you're helping with like, um, well, well, occupational therapy, right? Yeah. Okay. Arts and crafts, you okay. know? Okay. Um, yeah. I, I, I worked with uh, Vietnam vets in the mornings and World War II and Korean vets in the afternoons. Wow. So being yeah. around, being around um, that population, did it kind of help see what was going on with Peter later, like with his family and his situation? Um, trying to think. Uh, well, you did, I mean... Working there, you really did see the impact of war on men's psyches, you know? Yeah. And and I think that we, you know, as we're growing up, we absorb a lot, uh, obviously, as children from our parents or, or what they've gone through and what their psychological um, uh, uh, twerks are, you know what I mean? It's, right. it's and I think and, and I think because Peter's father was... Um, was you know he was a veteran and and was in combat in World War II in Italy. Uh, he when he came back he was a, a very hard drinker and um, very committed to that kind of uh, war hero ideal of of guns and hard drinking and you know um, everything that goes along with that kind of uh, machismo you know right. Um, and, um, so, you know, Peter absorbed a lot of that from his father, but at the same time, it wasn't, uh, as far as I knew him, it wasn't really his nature to, he was far, far gentler of a spirit, but, you know, I, I think that was part of his schism and his personality that, that, um, you know, and also the, the alcoholism. I mean, right. I think alcoholism in a lot of, in a lot of ways is genetic. So, um, it certainly was for me. <laughs> you know, no, I I agree with that. I, I see a lot of um, friends like I fell into a weird uh, um, I talked with it with Elizabeth Nicolin, um, a weird lane of running open mic nights. So I do music full time too, which I didn't throw in, but like doing open mic nights oh. at uh at sober bars and stuff, and it, it's interesting mm-hmm. the the clientele that kind of rolls through. But like um, that's a. That's it. I do agree with you. Like, I definitely think that runs in the family, and like, it just it finds its ways to get in. And like, growing up with someone who's been through that much trauma, uh, and like, I imagine like when you're working with the World War II vets later on in the evening, which is that's interesting. That was kind of like a um, a war shift with like a, 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 a with clientele, or at least how that how that yeah. planned out. That's our. But I guess that makes sense because you'd want to put the put people together with similar situations that are uh, needing that type yeah. of help. Um, yeah, and also, I mean, and also the the Vietnam veterans, there was a a lot uh, more uh, drugs involved in Vietnam. You know, there there was a lot of LSD and heroin, and so so they were affected in in you know not only by the violence and the killing, but also by the drugs in ways that the Second World War and Korean vets didn't really experience as much. You know, it was a different kind of a mindset um, that affected uh, the, the groups. Wow. What a, what a, like, was that your first job? Yeah. Wow. My very first job. <laughs> what a, yeah. what a eye-opening first <laughs> gig. 
Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. It was, yeah. I think your your next job, I don't I don't know if this lines up right, but you worked at the Lorraine uh Ford Mortar plant as one of the first women on the assembly line. Yeah, yeah. Was that right after or was that same time where you're like Um, I I also worked at a Salvation Army for a period of time. Oh yeah, that's in the book. Yeah. And and I worked at that Salvation Army, uh, like, uh, well, two different Salvation Armies. But before I worked at Ford Motors, I did work at Salvation Army for a moment. And then after I met Peter, I worked there again. I worked at a, de- a different spot. Okay. Um, One closer yeah, to so in between, uh Yeah. Okay. So in between, um, in between, um, you know, the the hospital uh, and um, and Ford was Salvation Army. But Ford lasted for about a year, I think. Yeah. And I had to quit because I would come home from like a, sometimes a 10-hour shift, and, a, and I would sit, I would just sit on the rug in my apartment and hallucinate vans moving slowly past my eyes. I mean, it was really... That was, I think, the hardest job I, I ever had, for sure. Well, it's for sure. so monotonous, and you just react. Oh, man. <laughs> like, so yeah. when, when did, <laughs> like, you met Peter in between that, and with, like, your upbringing, be, being in all these different places, and, like, usually music that's in the family kind of resonates in, like, the household. Uh-huh. Since you've had this, like, vast experience already of all these different things, what like I know gospel music had a, a huge impact on you, but what else did? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, I loved uh, early uh, Motown and like in in the uh, reformatory, we you know we were addicted to Soul Train, so we kind of lived for Saturday afternoons when Soul right. Train would come on. So I think I grew up on Motown too, but I also absolutely loved rock and roll. Um, so, you know, I was always listening to rock and roll and David Bowie and, um, you know, Bowie was, was uh, he, he was making music as early as what, 70, 71, I think. I think so. I'm trying to remember what that um, Anyway. Yeah, yeah. but I, you know, yeah, I was, I, I was listening to rock and roll um, and Motown and soul music and uh, not so much jazz and blues, but um Definitely uh, rock and roll, you know. The Beatles, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin. I yeah. listened to Zeppelin when I was a kid, you know. I, I mean, I, I kind of ran the gamut in terms of music that I was into and influenced by Elton John. I loved pop music, too. Um, Gladys Knight and the Pips, you know, Dionne Warwick. Uh, Aretha Franklin, so so yeah, I I loved it all really, and that that makes so much sense with your music later on. Um, when did writing? When did you start writing? When did poetry come into your life? Oh, funny enough, this is a this goes back to Parma. I was in a foster no home, and yeah, and uh, I, you know. Growing up, having been abandoned by my family and just having a very crazy childhood, I wrote poetry. And I had a, I, I, I had this little notebook that I carried with me that I kept my poems in. And my foster sister at the time was very um, jealous of me. And she would see me writing and she just hated it. You know, I just was very competitive with me. And it was a terrible situation. They in that particular home, there was like, I think five or six kids. And I was like the Cinderella, you know? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> so, uh, at one point, um, I came home and she goes, come here. I want to show you something. We go into the, in, into the restroom and she had ripped all of my poems up and they were sitting in the toilet and she just flushed them. Damn. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So how... I didn't write poetry for a very long time after that. Um, oh. But, um, you know, I started writing songs and songs are very much akin to poetry, really. Right. Um, I started writing songs um, probably when I was, gee, uh, 
right around when I was meeting Peter, I started writing songs. So I guess I was about 20. Yeah. And in, in that time, like you were kind of a, were you, were you playing at like Mike nights and stuff where you perform? When did like, cause I know there's a, that at one point Peter sees you perform. Um, right. Were, were you getting some type of stage like, um, uh, practice? Absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> funny enough, that, that was the only time that I had ever stood up and sang publicly in Cleveland. And he happened to be there wow. at that moment. Wow. So that was kind of kismet, you know? Yeah. So, cause yeah. that's such a big deal as like to, to get up there and do that one. Like I've, I've hosted a ton of mic nights and personally have gone up and that, that, experience of going up there attempting something and having some honest feedback or some like hey you know that was pretty okay you're like cool i did it yeah yeah and like just to uh, hear that uh, back so in uh, especially describing that situation with the with um your, your um foster sister in parma to have someone like be like yeah. what you did was good and not tear it up like and genuinely mean it that had to be like right huge no, oh, it was. It was a. It was a huge moment. You know, hence why he was so important in my life. You know. Right. In this. Um, yeah. So okay, from there you kind of bounce to uh to Boston for a bit with Nan, right? Or was that before? Yeah, that? yeah. I, I that was my first trip out of uh, New York. I went to visit Nan in Boston. Stayed with her for about a week, and then when I came back, um, I spent that following summer with her in uh, Provincetown, which was very eye-opening. And then it wasn't long after I came back to Cleveland from Provincetown that I met Peter. Gotcha. Gotcha. And how yeah. was that experience eye-opening? Well, you know, it was um, in Cleveland, uh, gay culture was pretty confined to a couple of bars and yeah. Small, small circles of uh, of friends, and in Pro Provincetown was a very gay uh, city by the sea. You know, a town. I mean, it's more like a village, but um, you could see people openly holding hands on the street, which is something you know, which was totally right. impossible to do in Cleveland. You'd get your your ass kicked if you if you tried to do that. You know, at that time in in Cleveland. Um, but yeah, so it was very eye-opening and also, you know, Nan's friends were very savvy about what was going on in the music and art worlds in New York city. So I was turned on to a lot of music and art and, uh, you know, writing. And, um, so yeah, Nan and her friends kind of opened the door to a whole new world of, of how to, how to look at art that you know, wasn't the established, oh, you know, let's, let's look at a Renoir painting. Um, and I, that, that really showed me the possibilities are endless in um, creativity and, and where one could go. They also turned me on to Patti Smith, mm. um, whose poetry I read for the first time in, in Provincetown, which totally blew me away because she was so androgynous and, she wrote as a, uh, at that time she was writing, she could write as a boy or like slip into the skin of a boy and write about girls or, uh, you know, be a, a total woman and, you know, lusting after Rambeau. So, you know, it was really uh, revelatory, the whole thing in terms of uh, gender and uh, art. That's, ama that's amazing. Cause then you, you come from that like opening experience and then you meet Peter and like, He's showing you all these, all like television and all these blues records and like, like yeah, teaching you music and just to be immersed in that like creative explosion makes so much sense. How like impactful all this was and how it trajected your career. Um, yeah, you, like uh, you mentioned writing songs, um, and you would write songs with Peter to kind of distract him from drinking. Um, no, that wouldn't distract him from drinking. Okay. There was a lot of okay. drinking involved when we were writing songs. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> I so. mean, you know, unfortunately, it's a very druggy, drinky relationship, you know, right. friendship. Um, 
But he wasn't, you know, it, it, it wasn't always that way. There were sober moments and yeah. of clarity and fun as well, you know. Yeah, it, I I think if it was just that way, it wouldn't as it wouldn't be as impactful or meaningful. You know, what I mean, you'd be able to kind of be like, well, right. It was just always a fun time. But this, it, like this memoir you wrote, is so well written and like it puts you just in this whole like scene of what everything is, and it's beautifully, beautifully done. And I think a beautiful, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A beautiful take of who Peter is and or who Peter was. And um, thank you. Uh, sorry, side side note, but at one point he gives you the Sonic Duo. Do you still have that guitar? Um, I do not. It was stolen oh, from no. during a gig at CBGB's. Yeah. 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 Somebody, somebody walked off with it. So, oh. you know, that was a big heartbreak for right. me. Um, I've had a couple of other duo sonics over the years, but I, 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 you know, ended up selling them or whatever, but I'm thinking about getting another one. Um, because they they're they've done reissues now, Fender, and apparently they're quite lovely guitars. They're very well made. So uh, I'm thinking about getting another one. You know, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I got a, a Squire version of one, and it it's got a it's got this weird metal pickguard, and like it sounds super rad, and the neck's super small. Uh huh. But uh. Uh huh. So kind of because he like I listened to all those Smogvale recordings, which had to be an endeavor, like in. He's kind of lumped into this like art. Peter um, is lumped into like this art kind of punk movement with Perubu, but a lot of those recordings are uh-huh. like him doing beautiful folk, uh, like Bob Dylan inspired, like uh, country inspired singer songwriter type songs on like a twelve string. Like yeah, it, yeah. He had to be like a a fairly like confusing character to some because he in these pictures he looks like the. The, this like rock star and then there's all these recordings of him playing with like bands doing these uh, uh with the Cinderella Backstreet doing like this rad versions of like Jimi Hendrix tunes and um Velvet Underground tunes like this duality yeah. of character yeah. um yeah do you to you is there like which since he was your friend is there one that when you have you've heard all these recordings I'm sure is there one that represents yeah. Peter Moore like is one more of the this is the Peter I know, or is it this kind of duality of a wow. character? Wow. Wow. Um gee, like if there's if if I had to think about one song, um wow. Because, uh, there you know, I always thought of Peter as more of that that was more of who he really was, uh the singer songwriter, yeah. you know, the the bards, the one that loved, because he was, he also loved poetry. He read poetry all the time. He was a reader. He loved literature. Um, and, oh my goodness, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think if there was one particular song. Well, Baudelaire always uh, jumps out at me as one yeah. of his most beautiful songs. Um, but there were so many, you know. Uh, I would have to think about that. I'll shoot you an email, um, <laughs> you know, after after we speak, and I'll let you know. Um, oh, that's awesome. Know, what <laughs> that's awesome. I didn't mean to, because, uh, like, listening to No, those, no, no. <laughs> that's cool. Listening to those recordings, like, and because I, 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 I stumbled upon your book trying to find stuff on Perubu, because I was, uh, like I mentioned in the email, I was talking with uh, David Thomas, and I found your book, and uh-huh. I was like, oh, this is cool. And I read the first, like, two chapters. I'm like, this is so beautifully written. I, I want to see if I can talk to Adele. And, like, and then I came back. And then, <laughs> and then I read the rest. And then I read, oh, well, there was some conflict between Peter and David. Maybe I shouldn't have said I was talking to him. <laughs> like, um, um, and, um, but this was, he, you did, he does, uh, later in the book, you mentioned some of the poets he, like, uh, um, he read and I, I'm guessing shared with you. And, like, it's such an, especially in like your early twenties or late teens, like all these introductions to music and literature are so like mind developing of who you become later and the people you're like the people that introduced it at that age. Like those are the kind of things that stick. And, um, yeah, it's amazing that all this kind of like melded into your career that, 
after all of it, like when you went to New York on your own, and the kind of um, mm-hmm. jump before I jump guns and asking you questions about that, um, when you were hanging out with Peter, he like was like Rocket from the Tombs opened up for television. Like there was all these New York yeah. connections. Do you have any memories of uh, of that show in particular, or uh, of um, Peter's uh, interactions with like Richard Lloyd or um, Richard Hell or any of the other guys from television? Well, I never, I was never in their physical presence. I mean, Peter and I went to concerts together sometimes, but we didn't see television together. But he gotcha. would play me television music, and uh, we did go to a, a a Patti Smith concert together. We also went to see Iggy Pop. Oh, cool. Um, when David Bowie was on keyboards wow. at the Agora. Oh, Incredible. Yeah, yeah I've seen a, yeah, a, I, bits and I, of that. I, I was reminded of that, and I forgot to put it in the book, which is too bad, because it, it was really uh, quite a quite an experience seeing that show. But um, what was the question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, it's just because uh, in the book, he you've mentioned like he would have phone calls with Richard Hell, and like, he would get super mad. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's that one point where he shoots yeah. the wall with like... <laughs> Yeah. Had a, yeah. Uh, so I it seems like they they were like not just like kind of figures of this New York uh, uh punk rock ethos but they were like people that you guys crossed uh cl- um cross paths with. Yeah, um, well well Peter knew them for sure um and um one of well his his best friend uh Tim Wright who um who died about a few years ago. Uh, Tim was the bass player in Perubu, and he quit Perubu uh, briefly after Peter left, but they remained really good friends. And um, Tim um, Tim is the one who told me some stories about like what happened when Peter died, because um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't yeah. there at that moment. I was in New York. Um, but Tim and Marianne, his his partner, had one of those huge apartments um, off of Coventry. I think it was maybe on Lancashire, like okay. where we lived as well, that street. I can't remember what street they were on, but uh, when Peter helped television get a gig in Cleveland, and when they did come to play, television stayed with Tim and Marianne. And um, Tom Verlaine was actually kind of upset about Peter's drinking because because when Peter would be in front when he would be in the company of people like Verlaine and Lloyd or Richard Hell, he would just self implode by drinking himself into like, you know, a ridiculous state. And people really worried about him, you know. Yeah. I mean, he was very, very self destructive. Um, and this was his fear that he wouldn't be accepted. He was very torn about how to be his authentic self. Um, because he could play just as well as Richard Lloyd or Tom Verlaine. And, and those guys knew that about him, but his drinking sabotaged it all, um, which was really, really sad. Uh, he had kind of a contentious relationship with Hell. They were friends. Hell also knew that Peter was a brilliant musician. Um, Richard, you know, he was a little competitive with Peter. Um, and instead of, you know, supporting him back, because uh, Peter gave Richard a lot of support, um, yeah. wrote articles about him and whatnot, um, he would dig at him, and um, which, you know, pissed Peter off, especially when he was drunk or high. <laughs> yeah, and someone who's already not, so, who's insecure, and you're, you're going out of your way to, to bring this person up, and they're shooting you down, that's not going <laughs> to, right. I guess, pun intended, with the shooting part. Um, cause that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, th- yeah, that story I was like, what? You just shot this wall? How did that not that was, that... that was a little crazy. Yeah, that's yeah. super bonkers. <laughs> like Yeah. Um Yeah, when did he start do you know when he started writing because it was for uh, um Cream, right? Peter was writing for when he started writing? Yeah. What he yeah. I'm I'm not quite sure how early on he started writing. I think it was like right around the very early seventies. Okay. Um, and, and I don't know how he met Lester Bangs or how that occurred, but it, I'm pretty sure it was Lester that brought him into Cream. He okay. probably wrote to. I mean, Peter was a prolific let, letter writer. He he loved writing letters, 
And uh, I'm sure that he probably reached out to Lester, wrote him a letter and sent him a review. And Lester just really loved his writing and, you know, went on from there. That's my guess. I can't, you know, I can't say that that's fact, but that's what I would guess knowing Peter, you know. Because you guys eventually go on a trip to hang out with Lester and uh, do this whole New York run. Um, that passage yeah. you have about Lester being like uh, the Pollocka, uh, uh, Pollocka uh, phrasing and like how you describe his writing, like Jas- uh, Jackson Pollock and yeah. Charlie Parker, I thought was so beautifully written, like uh, as far as a description oh, about you. anyone or anything that's the coolest. Thank but um, thank you. so being around like uh, Peter and Lester and all these writers, did that bring um, the writing out of you again? Like, as far as, like, taking on poetry? Um, well, you know, aside from songwriting, I didn't really write for a very long time. I think, you know, that wound, that childhood wound really right. screwed me up. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's traumatic. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty traumatic. And I didn't write for a long, long, long time. And then it wasn't until the uh, 1990s that I started writing again. Like writing, you know, uh, prose, um, writing stories and yeah. starting to write poetry again. So it, t- it took, it, actually, I did, well, I, mm, yeah, I started writing a book in the, in the uh, late 70s in New York, but um, uh, the, the, uh, all of my belongings were taken because I stopped paying the rent on an apartment. So oh, they, <laughs> so I lost that book. <laughs> So that was probably another thing that, that, you know, made me, made me not want to attempt to write again. But, um, yeah, so in the nineties, I, I seriously started pursuing writing again. And, you know, I, I, I would, I would really study, uh, other writers. I mean, I've always been a reader. I've always loved literature and poetry and, you know, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until the nineties. Well, I mean, that's to have these like, the this writing takes a lot of time and it's a lot of effort and focused effort on one thing and then to have it taken away in multiple instant instances I would I I can see how one would be uh, deterred from it for a while. Um, yeah. When did uh because you read alongside Allen Ginsberg and Burroughs? When did that happen? Well, you know, in in the late seventies, um, there was. So much happening every night, and it, it wasn't like a big deal to uh, get up on stage and read like with ten, you know, ten other readers at the Mud Club, for instance. And that—that's yeah. where that happened. Okay. Uh, there okay. was a reading one night where a lot of people were, were just getting up and reading, and I and I was invited, and I read um, a poem called the Ragazzi Manifesto that I had written at that time. Actually, the Ragazzi Manifesto. Um, Scott B filmed it and um, it's now owned by, uh, well, the copyright isn't owned, but the, the film version of me reading it at Club 57 is now in, in the uh, Museum of Modern Arts archives, Whoa. which is pretty cool. That's pretty sick. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. cool. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't thought of as, as really that big of a deal because we were all in the scene together. Of course, yeah. I, I had nowhere near the fame of those guys or the output of those guys, but um, it was cool to, you know, meet them. And, you know, even briefly, I didn't hang out with them. I wasn't friends with them. I think I went to one party. Yeah, I'm writing about it in No New York um, uh, where I had a very short, funny conversation with William Burroughs, but I'll save that for my book. But, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it it wasn't really that big of a deal to read with those guys at that time. You know, that's incredible. Cause it's interesting at that time, I'd imagine there's like this crossover of like beats that are still around beat poets kind of lingering with the, this punk scene, which is becoming at least in New uh, New York, the, the, the no, uh, the no see, uh, oh, I can't think of that. I'm blanking. Um, the no wave, no wave. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I was no and like, yeah. <laughs> so there's like this weird transition of all this stuff. Um, yeah, there were a lot of cross pollinizations and crossovers and, um, you know, Patty Smith had a lot to do with that too, because she was very tight with William Burroughs and, and all the beats. 
And, um, but she was also kind of like the godmother of, of punk, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and then no wave was, was the next manifestation out of punk because punk in many ways was really about, um, three chord rock and roll sped up and, right. you know, with angry, with angry lyrics, but, um, no wave was uh, a dismantling of all of that completely, just taking it all apart and, um, uh, you know, more of a da-da in the artistic sense of what we were doing with music at that time. And and most of the people that were um, involved in the bands at, at that moment were not musicians. They were coming from art school and, you know, um, just picking up guitars and drums and keyboards and, and um, creating something more from an artistic, uh, 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 an artistic, uh, function that had to do more with like a surrealism or Dada or, you know, which was really exciting. It was really exciting. Um, and very, very performative, you know, very performative. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting because later in the Cleveland scene, you're getting bands like Perubu, Tin Huey, Devo, all these bands that are kind uh-huh. of taking influence from what No Wave like expands further upon. And um, right near uh, Peter's decline in health, you you go out to New York, and um, you're watching a uh, Suicide, which is one of those bands that is like the kind of like, as far as like no wave and punk, they're like on the uh, like the 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 tip of it because they were like in between that, and that's an interesting yeah. departure from y- that point in your life to where you you end up moving to New York and pursuing um your own career from um your time in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. But um, right. So when you do make that, because that's kind of where Peter and the Wolves leaves off to some degree. When you do make that move, um, when uh-huh. is when do you start working with Brian Eno? Or Let's when does see. He I think come? it was. Uh, well, I moved to New York in the late summer of nineteen seventy-seven. Like I think it was the beginning of September. Okay. And um. I started working with Eno, I think it was early 1978, Um, because I was in the contortions, and Steve Mass, the guy that owned uh, the Mud Club, introduced me to Brian Eno, and Eno needed an assistant. So I started working for him, and at the same time, No Wave was really taking off, so I would take him out in the evenings to see the bands, and there was a very very uh, important gigs that many of us in the no way did at a, at a venue called artist space. And, you know, you know, came to all of the shows and that's how the the whole project, no New York evolved. And actually the, the book that I'm writing right now is called no New York. And it takes off from where the Peter and the wolves book leaves off. That's so exciting. So, cool. So yeah. With the contortions, how did how'd you get involved with them? So are these guys you met through um, as you moved to New York and started this project and started playing with bands like, uh, I'm trying to think who else would be around there, DNA, um, uh, Jesus and the Jerks, right? That type of crew? Yep, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. Well, that's who I met first because Bradley Fields was a Clevelander, and I knew Bradley from Cleveland. And oh, okay. When I moved to New York, he was one of the first people I contacted, and I met him and Lydia Lunch, who became my first good friend in New York, and then a lot of the bands would rehearse at Bradley's Loft. So that's kind of how I got involved and met the Contortions and started playing with them there. Okay. And like that, the Contortions music is such like a, a good representation of all these different styles and stuff that you've heard and learned before. Like it bounces everywhere, and that's what's so cool about that band. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, you were playing keys in that, or you're bouncing between keys and guitar. Um, yeah, I played guitar on just two songs, I believe okay. it was, but mostly I was playing the ace tone organ. Gotcha, yeah, gotcha. That. And is that yeah. uh, when the 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 duo Sonic disappeared was from one of those gigs? It was from one of those gigs. Yeah, yeah. Damn. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool, though. So, um, not a 
not a fond memory that 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 night. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, not trying to bring it up. I just that's such a that's cool a guitar good. that doesn't get as much rep. You know what I mean? I I don't know. I I do enjoy yeah. those guitars. Um, oh yeah, sure. But um, so when did you meet Martin, the the sculptor? Martin the sculptor. Uh, Martin, uh, I'm gonna butcher his last name. <laughs> it's like Ken Kep Keppenberger. K I. Oh, Kippenberger. Kippenberger. Kippenberger in Berlin. Right. Well, he, apparently. Yeah, Kippenberger brought us. Okay. I'm sorry. No, no, keep going. You're right. <laughs> okay. No, Kippenberger um, invited uh, myself and Lydia Tenacious and the Jerks. I, at that point, I had quit the contortions and I was doing solo stuff with backing tapes and my okay. guitar and, and another guitar. <laughs> and um, and Kippenberger invited. He, I guess, he saw me in New York performing. Invited me, Lydia Lunch, at, who was in Teenage Jesus and the Jerks at the time, and um, uh, Scott and Beth B, who were doing films at the time, uh, to come over to Berlin and, and play SO36, which, which was a club that he was managing. Um, so, yeah, that's how that happened. Was it, like, reminiscent of New York in a way? Or was it, like, a... Well, I, no, I, yeah, I think that Berlin at the time was closer to the type of artistic expression that was going on in New York than London was. London was more into kind of punk. Um, but in Berlin, people were, there were painters, there were filmmakers, and there were musicians um, doing similar crazy work, uh, you know, that was more in line with the experimental work we were doing in New York and, and the fact that everybody was kind of cross collaborating, you know, painters with musicians, et cetera, that was happening big time in Berlin. And also um, it, it was the time that Iggy pop and David Bowie were there too. Yeah. Um, so it was a very interesting period in Berlin. Um, very exciting. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. It's, it's super yeah. interesting at, in America, everything is so kind of like, um, uh, compartmentalized in a way. And then outside, it's kind yeah. of just mangled up. Um, yeah. So yeah. when did, after all this, when does, when do you meet, uh, um, Kathy Ray and when do the bloods become a thing? I met Kathy Ray because someone, I needed a haircut and someone suggested uh, she <laughs> cut my hair and she cut my hair and we, started hanging out and she was playing guitar and I started singing and I think we were doing the pretenders, the first album of the pretenders. We were doing those songs together and we thought, and we just looked at each other and said, I said, you can play guitar. And she's like, you can sing. I'm like, yeah, let's start an all girl band. And, uh, it just went from there. You know, we, we, uh, found Annie tune who's now Anderson tune. And, um, we put an ad in the paper in the uh, Village Voice for a drummer and a bass player, and uh, you know, it just went from there. It was really fun. That's awesome. We, we had a blast. Those tunes. We had a blast. You, the ones that are on your website are so catchy and so like. It's a beautiful mix of funk and punk, and like, you guys got to open for the Clash, which is insane. Yeah, we That's did. so rad. What was that yeah. like? Did you meet Joe? That was. That was crazy. Yeah, we met we met all the guys backstage. They were absolutely lovely to us. They wanted women's bands to open for them. And I think at the time, the Bush Tetras and the Bloods were the only uh, bands that, you know, had predominantly women in them. So we, we both opened for them on the same night, which was pretty exciting. Wow. Yeah. That's sick. That's so yeah. cool. Well, I guess, there was a, a, at least out of, a, out of America, the Slits, but um, I don't. Were they after that? Maybe they're after that. I don't know. Um, who I know did some stuff with the with the Clash. Um, mm -hmm. that's so cool. Uh, Joe Strummer's always been one of those characters. I'm like, this guy's what? That, mythos. <laughs> so they get to hang out with those guys. Yeah. That'd be so cool. Yeah, he, he, you know, I, I didn't know him well, but I have a couple of friends who knew him well and, and they just rave about what a great guy he was, you know? 
Now, after <laughs> after the blood's kind of um, split up and you embark on your solo career, you've picked up a lot of like gigs doing a um, backup singing. What was that like to mm-hmm. step like kind of back and like kind of support? Was it a mind shift? Was it easy to do? Was it um? Well, I didn't really start singing background vocals until after my um, my solo record deals kind of went south, and um, you know that's an, another story for for my book. But um, the it was really fun actually. There was a lot less pressure yeah. to be this personality with all of these responsibilities that were hard to navigate when you have major record deals as an artist, unless you have incredibly solid supportive managers that you can trust and, you know, a good support system around you, uh, musicians, etc. cetera, um, they just chew you up. And um, it's really, really difficult as a background singer. I could support musicians that I really, um, loved i loved their music and um make a great living and still be on stage performing and um and and i loved doing it it was you know it was a really um wonderful wonderful job i couldn't think of a better job to have than you know writing and singing and in whatever aspects both of those uh happen to uh manifest you know right I I feel very blessed that I've been able to do that most of my life. That's so cool. Like, <laughs> you guys got the contracts. You handle it. I did the bit. The harmony's right, right? Cool. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, I just show up, dress up, and sing. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's only as awesome once you know, like, how much of the BS there is to get to that point and, like, understanding that mm-hmm. and... I'm sure that made you super easy to work with. They're like, yep, I got it. Here it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I love singing harmony. Harmony is like, I just, I absolutely adore harmonies. You know, it's like when I hear a band like First Aid Kid, right? Or when I hear uh, Jillian Welch and David Rawlings. I mean, harmony. I absolutely adore it. It just slays me. Did it come My easy favorite. for you? Har- singing harmonies. Um, it, 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 it basically came from my grandmother. My mother's mother was a piano player and a brilliant singer. And and she taught me about harmony and rhythm. And, um, so as, as a very little girl, you know, um, I started young with her. So, you know, I, I, I was very uh, grateful to have had her in my life. She was, she was amazing. That's right. That's in the book. Now she like, she was a performer, right? She played at, um, played piano at a um, bars and such. And like, I'm trying to remember exactly yeah. from the book. Yeah. She, she played piano in speakeasies, speakeasies. during the depression. Yeah. Yeah. God, she so was, uh, she could play like, she was like a Fats Waller type of, you know, honky tonk stride player. She, she kicked butt on the piano. She was absolutely amazing. Um, and uh, I could never get it out of her how she learned how to play. Hmm. I would always ask her, oh, I just play by ear. You know, I always knew how. But somebody must have taught her something. You know what I mean? Right. You don't get that left <laughs> hand moving that easily with the, <laughs> like, especially with Fats Wallers exactly. and Boogie Woogie tunes like that. That left hand just doesn't hear yeah. that. <laughs> that's, I know. that's technique. Yeah. You nailed it. It's the left hand, you know. If you don't have the left hand, that rhythm, you you're, you know, can't play, man. Wow. Yeah, but so she cool. she was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Such a character. Loved her. So yeah. you with the like uh, as far as like backup singing gigs, you really locked in with Tears for Fears. How'd that come about? Um I was uh, a solo artist on Chrysalis and when my deal ended, um my publicist was uh dating Kurt. Okay. Uh, one half years and uh, she said, hey, you know, they're they're going to go on tour for their Sowing the Seeds of Love album. You should, like, maybe, you know, audition to sing background vocals for them, which I did. I flew over to England and auditioned and got the job, which was wonderful because I really loved their music. You know, right. I, 80s, British 80s pop is, is just so good. Uh, a lot of pop in, in America, too, during that time was great. But, but the Brits had that. 
that sound down, you know, right. that synthy pop. It's like so a, good. Yeah. Beautiful. Like they like taking all the, the no wave and like making it pop, just polishing it in a way. Like it's all those sounds done in the right way. Um, you yeah, guys, the hurting, the hurting, it was one of my, my, it, that's still one of my top five records. The hurting by tears for fears. It's so good. Definitely. You know, a lot of great tunes on that one. That's, um, for sure. But so you guys got the open for Dylan. Yes, we opened for Dylan down in, um, uh, was it Brazil? I think it was Brazil. Yeah. I wrote about it in the book. Right. Um, we also, uh, yeah, we did a gig in Argentina as well. And I'm trying, no, whatever I said in the book was the correct, uh, thing, but, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was really something, that really is- something. Did you get the Did you get the cross paths with Dylan, or was he the ghost that appeared on stage and disappeared? No, he was. Yeah, he was just this guy standing at the side of the stage, very private. Dylan, you know, right. very private guy. Didn't get to meet him. Got to meet Annie Lennox of the Whoa. Arrhythmics. We nice. Opened, uh, we played on the same bill with with the Arrhythmics, which was really fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, what the a, Bloods actually opened for Van Morrison in Holland once. No way, that's all. No how, way? How was that? <laughs> you got to meet Van the Van. <laughs> I I met Van the Van the, the Man, <laughs> I said but it he backwards. was actually Van the Grump. He was Van the Grump. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> he, I know he was one of the most unpleasant people I've ever met. I hate to say it because I absolutely loved his music, but. Yeah. What a grump. <laughs> uh, even, Not friendly at all. Oh, know? that sucks. Like, even how you say, he, yeah. that was like the most polite way I've heard someone say that that person was impolite. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> that's so exciting, but such a bummer. Oh, man. I know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was very, you know, uh, very complimentary, like, oh, Mr. Morrison, I loved your music. And he just sneered at me and wouldn't oh. even say hello. I mean, it was creepy. That is <laughs> it weird. was creepy. That is weird. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. But, wow. <laughs> like, just because you, you end Peter and the Wolves, I guess this is a spoiler for anyone that's listening. It's not really a spoiler, but, like, talking kind of about how surreal it was to be opening for Dylan and like how crazy that is go, going back from listening to those records with Peter and like how surreal that is. And like, and you, yeah. you do this beautiful way of like kind of sharing these stories and bringing these, uh, you call them ghosts in some other um, interviews and um, things I've read, but bringing them with you to kind of mm-hmm. share this moment, which I think is like a beautiful way to kind of cap that. And like how stoked Peter would have been to have been around that stage, and like, or to learn yeah. that Van Morrison was a grump, or, <laughs> or to see the Clash or groups like that. It's so cool that you carry <laughs> these with you, and you're, they through you are experiencing <laughs> these amazing uh, feats uh, of a musical career. And now that you're sharing them, um, you just I saw on um. I think it was Facebook or something. You, uh, your second book came out like two days ago. Can you talk about that? Oh, it's not actually. Yeah, it's not actually out yet. Oh, but okay. it's it, it, uh, pre-sales are happening at the University of Texas Press um, on their website, and it's a book called Why LaBelle Matters, and it's it's about the band LaBelle, Patti LaBelle, Nona Hendrix, and Tara yeah. Dash, and. The fact that, you know, nobody had ever written a book about them was just extraordinary to me. I couldn't believe it because really they were kind of like the first iconic rock star band of women. Um, and I say that because of the fact that they combined just this incredible music that was a mix of, mix of genres with that whole iconography of what a rock star is supposed to look like and uh, perform like, um, like in the sense of when Bowie came out with Ziggy Stardust, um, these women would appear on stage in these silver space costumes. Um, and you know, when I saw them for the first time at the Allen theater in 1975 in Cleveland, um, one of them was being, you know, uh, 
she descended on wires from the rafters on the stage. I mean, it, it was the whole show was so theatrical and so absolutely brilliant and mind blowing because they were the first women to kind of screw around with the genre and gender on stage and um, and and they were. I mean, musically they were absolutely brilliant. I mean, Patty LaBelle has a, a range that is you know just curls the hair, right? But um, Nona and Sarah were also very upfront in that band and their harmonies. No, no one had ever heard, uh, women sing like that together. Um, the explosive volatility of the passion in their voices when they would, I mean, when they would sing together, was just awe inspiring. So I really hope people will read that book. It's not a typical biography, it's all it's part memoir it's part critical analysis and 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 part um well you'll yeah i don't want to give it all away no, either no, but, that's cool. you know i think that's a, that's yeah. a perfect cliffhanger on you got to check out this book cuz you i want to yeah. read it now wow that's awesome uh, cool. did you did you uh, oh, cool. cross paths with them like post show did you get to hang out with them and like meet them down the road to help write this book or I yeah I, I do I do know Nona Hendricks a bit um, Nona uh, signed my band the Anubian Life to a label she had back in I think it was 2005 my you know yeah. the, I'm so old at this point Dave I can't remember the date yeah. Well, and with the amount <laughs> but, uh, that, that you've done musically, like it's so all over the place, which is awesome. But uh, it's, no, but no, it has to be overwhelming. But, anyway. we, uh, yeah, that's funny. But but you know, <laughs> Nona um, signed us to to her label. She had a label for a couple of years, and 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 we put out a record. Um, I was the lead singer in a band called The Indian Lights, and that's a fun fun uh, record. If anybody wants to have a listen to it. It's called Bantoscope. And um, actually, there's a song on there called Way Gone Man that could very much be about our former president. Baboom. So <laughs> for anybody yes. who cares to listen, that's a good one. That's sick. <laughs> can, I, can I put that at the end of the podcast? Put that tune? Sure, of course. Sweet. No, please. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> Was it? Well, yeah. I think, wow, that's... That's so cool. When do you have any project, uh, uh, predictions for when uh, no uh, no New York might become uh, able to pre-order? Or well, honestly, you know, if people buy these first two books of mine and I get well reviewed and and I I'm able to attract the attention of a really savvy agent who can get me a deal for no New York, that would be excellent. You know. Uh, so I, I'm just working away on the book, and um, I also have a book, a childhood memoir. So yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, this this year since we're still going to be locked down for right. a while, I'm just prepping the next two books for um, publication, you know, um, and hoping for the right agent that I click with that uh, can help me bring those books to the world. You know? I, yeah, I imagine that whole end of 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 the music or 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 creative industry is such a hard like, you know, I mean, like you know where the venues at. You eventually learn who puts the bands in the venues, but to find the guy that put or the the, the person that put you to the person who helps make the production of books, or you know, what I mean, or or to even begin to yeah. like d try to do some type of film endeavor. It's such a different like more complicated process and like yeah i can't imagine yeah. but it's yeah. so badass yeah. what you're doing like with these first two books that you got putting these stories out there and like because they're not out Thank there you. and i think that is so cool and i'm i'm fingers crossed yeah. that the other two get the you find the right agent and you get to put those out sooner than later Oh, thank you so much dave that's so sweet and you know i just want to do a shout out to frank Malseri, who does Smogvale, um, yeah. and just say, you know, that Peter and the Wolves would not have happened um, without him, and hit, without him having done that beautiful collection of Peter's music, um, you know, uh, I don't know that I would have republished this book, so, you know, I just want to uh, shout him out, because he's a, he's a really good guy, and he, he cares a lot about Cleveland music, and he's done a lot to uh, uncover 
you know, some of the music of Cleveland that people just weren't aware of. Right. Like, I, I went down the rabbit hole after I listened to the Peter collection, and, like, he's got some stuff from a, from David Thomas, and he's got some stuff from a Chris Butler, and it's really cool to find, mm-hmm. like, a the, a, a Cleveland late. I don't know. I, I, I've lived in Cleveland forever. I didn't know that was a thing. So this was a really cool way to find, like, someone preserving and, like, get, it's still producing all this amazing stuff that's right. coming out of Cleveland. So. Yeah, 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 that's good. That's good. Great. Yeah. Well, Dave, you know, when when I do get to Cleveland, because I I will be there to do readings and and I'm going to do a show in Cleveland at some point as well. um, You know, I'll invite you to the readings and we'll meet. And um, that'd be awesome. Yeah. 